Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 142 with Michael Rika, the founder of Now I Can Read, who created an online literacy program called Redify Learning for children aged 10 to 17 who struggle with literacy. We know from our past episode number 136 with Lois Ledgeford with her dyslexic son who went on to graduate with his PhD from Oxford University that some children need different learning strategies than how they're being taught traditionally in the classroom. Michael's program focuses on the critical life skills of verbal and written language and communication with the backbone of social and emotional skills to help propel these students to excel both inside and outside of the classroom. Michael has a powerful story to open up some ideas and strategies if you're a teacher in the classroom or if you're a parent with a struggling reader at home. For those looking for ideas for the workplace, Michael has a compelling story that she'll share on how she took all of her programs online, maximizing her time and efforts with her students, and giving her more balance back in her life. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now living in the United States, and like many of our listeners, have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high-performance strategies in our schools, sports, and the workplace. If you've been listening to our podcast, you'll know that we've uncovered that if we want to improve our social and emotional skills and experience success in our work and personal lives, it all begins with an understanding of our brain. Now, this brings us to our next guest. When I first met Michael through LinkedIn, I knew right away that she had created something unique. And it was when I heard that she'd been focused on helping struggling students to learn how to read for the past 20 years and has helped over a thousand students learn how to read. If you've ever worked with just one struggling reader, you'll know that it takes someone extremely special to uncover exactly what each student needs. And Michael has this gift. Here's a bit about Michael. Michael Rika founded the Academic Associates Center in Williston, Vermont in 2008. She holds an advanced teaching Master's of Education from Northwestern University, a bachelor's degree in elementary and special education, and has over 20 years experience working with students with all types of learning styles and differences. She pulls from many sources to individualize instruction, but her foundation is the Orton-Gillingham Technique, Her program is a multi-sensory and enables students by using direct instruction to review, learn new concepts, practice, and then apply what they're learning. Orton Gillingham has been utilized for over 50 years, is multi-sensory, systematic, structured, sequential, cumulative, and success-oriented. Research states that the effectiveness of quality literacy instruction has less to do with the program used and more to do with the efficacy of the teacher and the intensiveness of the student's engagement. Let's meet Michael Rika and see what strategies she can bring to light after 20 years of focused work in the field of literacy and social and emotional learning. Welcome, Michael. It's wonderful to have this opportunity to speak with you here today. Thank you so much for sharing your story that I know will spark some new ideas for those listening who might be working with students who are struggling readers. Welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Michael, when we first met through LinkedIn, something caught my attention about your work with students. And it was the fact that you've been focused on one thing for over 20 years, and that's to help struggling students learn how to read. And for the past two decades, you've taught over a thousand students how to read without the need for repeat instruction. That's phenomenal. <laughs> and what was it? that inspired you to pick reading for your life's work and what kept you on this subject for the past 20 years? Well, first of all, thank you for pointing that out because um, I sometimes just, I forget, you know, that I'm that old, number one, and um, that it is, it, is a, it is a huge accomplishment, right? To be doing something that you love for that long. I think when I think about my teenage boys now, I wonder how many different careers they'll have. Um, but yeah, no, I, I still really do love what I do. And um, I think, uh, you know, I always knew from a really young age that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I just didn't know in what capacity. Um, but I was, when I first started, I started as a volunteer, actually, even though I had um, an elementary and a special ed degree, I went um, into something called Inner City Teaching Corps, which was a volunteer program for two years. And I had 42 second graders on the inner city of Chicago and quickly, you know, quickly learned classroom management um, and, and learned how to do it well, um, but made some of my most um, dearest and lifelong friends there. Um, and then afterwards, I, I guess, you know, I, I kind of at the time looked at it as selling out, but I sold out to the, the white suburbs of Chicago and, um, taught 16 first graders. So that was quite a difference um, with numbers. But no matter what, um, at the end of each year, I realized I still felt like I didn't have enough minutes. And um, I had a special ed degree and I still didn't feel like I really knew how to teach a child how to read. Um, I was actually, I just did a podcast with Dr. Noland of Learning Ally, and she was saying that there's statistics out there that says that 11% of teachers feel prepared to teach a child how to read, yeah. um, 11. <laughs> so I think it's, um, there's a lot of shame that comes alongside that because as a teacher, you're supposed to feel like you know what you're doing. You're supposed to feel like a leader and um, that you've got it figured out. Um, but we don't, we're really not prepared. We don't have um, the right um, systems in place. And I, it, it's improving, but um, it's, it's not where it needs to be. And so that um, after that year, I did a deep dive into Orton Gillingham instruction and um, did, you know, week long and, and month long and, and retreats and um, professional developments with um, really understanding what structured literacy was. And um, after I worked with five of my students um, in a one-on-one -on -one setting and I saw the progress that happened in that, that really structured um, small setting, I just, I kind of never looked back. Oh my goodness, I love it. You're speaking my language because, you know, going into the classroom, I wasn't prepared for the behavior, let alone yeah. teaching the content. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you mentioned both those things. How are we supposed to get to the content if we can't manage the students? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where that's where I got stuck for sure. And I know that um, that as the years went on, I saw that there's still not a lot of um, focus on that until they started to bring social and emotional more to the forefront of the importance of classroom management, you know, making sure the students' uh, relationships are important, um, seeing the students, uh, who they are, before we can even get to the content, there's so much more that has to happen. So I love that you brought that up. It's so true. I used to have a post-it note on my, my mirror um, when I was teaching in the inner city that said, they are just little kids. <laughs> because if I look back, I think I was terrified. I was so scared. And, you know, classroom management and, um, you know, there were 42 of them and, you know, behavior, like you said. And, um, yeah, it was terrifying. Um, and it is, it is a, you know, like you either pick it up or you don't. <laughs> it's so true. And then what's, what's crazy is that, with that teaching background, then you become a parent. And I still didn't know what to do when my daughter was struggling to read. Right. Yeah. You think you're supposed to know, right? The whole other cycle. It's like, we've got all these tools and resources and my husband and I are both in education. He has all access to all these online programs. You, you probably have heard of them all. Yeah. And we still were like, well, it's not working because doing more of the same, let's sit. And I talked about this in some of the interviews I've had, sit down and read more is not the answer, right? Yeah. And you're right. I, we, my husband and I both experienced the same thing where you would think that it prepared us for parenthood <laughs> in a way better than, you know, going to college and getting, you know, an engineering degree. But no, we still are constantly learning, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I read something on your website that any teacher can pick up in a heartbeat. And it was that the art of teaching can't be taught. Instead, it's often the result of a natural gift that's been fostered by continuous study. Can we talk about that a bit? Like we've all had those teachers with that quality and they instilled the love of learning in us. And I saw it in my interview with Lois Lutchford, her son failed first grade and she figured out what his switch was that helped him to go from a dyslexic student to graduating with his PhD from Oxford. And she found it through his love of learning these explorers through maps, but what, inspired your love for the subject there's got to be more to this why do you think you've got something that other people never get to yeah i actually really love this question because it was um actually the topic of my thesis when i was at northwestern because um i really wanted to know if you know is that is it is that art of teaching something that can be taught or not and um you know, Dr. Um, Motes is one of my heroes and she says highly qualified teachers, not programs, teach students to read. And um, that's not to say that, you know, the teachers don't have to be highly qualified in what they've studied and that their, their practice should be research-based. But I think that, you know, how to motivate each child and understanding what motivates someone is truly instinctive. And, um, 
you know, that's, that's, that's more of an instinctual feeling based on, you know, whether or not you can access that part of who you are, than it is about a science. And I think, um, well, what I learned through my thesis is that you can't teach it. <laughs> you either, you really do either have that access to um, the instinctual part of you that can really see what a child needs. And, and like you said before, it is all about connection and relationship. And, um, you know, even if you have all of the training in the world and you know systematically how to teach a child how to read, um, you, you still need to know how to uh, slow down and how to speed up and when to push harder and when to back off and when to just chat about how their soccer game went and when it's time to really, you know, hone in on a skill. And I think um, that art of teaching is, is just as important, if not more important than the science of teaching. Definitely. And I started to see that when I started to implement how the brain learns to read with some of the books I was reading, the interviews I was doing, I started sitting with my daughter and instead of saying, okay, let's read together, which was what I used to do, you know, let's read page, see how much we can read in 20 minutes. And I'd be looking at her and the slowing down part was hard because, you know, you want to push, 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 rush, 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 get everything in because it's going to be dinner time and we've got to get off to practice and all this stuff. But I remember sitting there and slowing down and thinking, you know, what's her brain doing right now? As I'm thinking about how is her brain processing the words that was like slowing down was such a big step. It was hard. It is huge, that wait time element. And I think um, I've talked with my husband about um, how much harder wait time can be in this virtual space, right? You know, and how teachers had to manage doing that with multiple students at once teaching virtually and um, how much of that body language and um, all of those other cues we really rely on as teachers to know when and, and how long to give a child to respond and when to slow down and when to speed up. Yes, definitely. All this is so important. But again, as teachers, isn't it shocking? We don't know this. It's like, never taught. Yeah. Never. And so we have both of us have been in front of students in the classroom without this and we have children and we had to figure this out through trial and error. And and I'm just learning through these interviews. This is why I'm doing the podcast. It's not just so that I can put information into the world. I'm actually using what I learn from each person for my own benefit in my life with myself and my family to see, you know, what what's working and what I can use. So it's implementable um, yeah. for everyone. So Thank great. you so much. Thank you for sharing this. Is there anything else that you can think of that, you know, that gave you something that other people don't have that, that something within you? Um, I think, you know, just kind of instilling that love of learning. I mean, it sounds like we're very connected in that way. And um, just kind of you know, for me, just being kind of a literacy geek, because um, someone said teaching 
teaching reading is like rocket science and it really is and you know well it's not rocket science and there are people that are like i can teach a kid how to read well, it can't be that hard you know and um but the truth is is that it really is changing all the time and improving all the time and what we know from you know the fmri scans and what we're learning about the brain is changing and improving all the time and um so I think just that natural curiosity that I have um, has connected me with so many other colleagues who also have that natural curiosity. And, um, you know, then you just, you connect with each other and share ideas just like we're doing today. And just having the vulnerability to say, um, I don't have it all figured out right? You know, I'm learning too, you know, I'm 43 years old, and I'm, I'm, I'm learning every day, I wouldn't life be so boring if I wasn't, you know, and I think that gives kids the freedom um, to say the same and to say, you know, I don't have it all figured out. And, um, and that's okay. And I just really, I love learning something new. And I love talking to other people about what I've learned. And, um, I mean, I think that's kind of what we all really want our kids to have more than anything. Yeah, definitely. And and don't you think it was a neat switch to Zoom when you're going into your workday now into Zoom where this is where a lot of the students have been living for years? Like they, I bet you they could code what the Zoom backend looks like. And so a lot of teachers were struggling, well, what, what do we do here? And, and I know a lot of my teacher friends connected closer to their students by asking them for help in certain situations. Like, what do we do here? And yeah. like you said, the vulnerability of saying, I don't know it all, that, that's what they yeah. wanna know. Yeah, no, it's so true. And, and there is something deeply valuable about um, allowing a child to be an expert and to teach you, right? And that, um, yeah, I mean, there have been so many times over this past year during COVID where I was just kind of like, how do I get that reaction thing again? Or what is it that I do? And they're like, you go like this and you know, and it's um, watching a child teach you is, and having them feel that feeling is, is one of the most important things that we can do for them. I love that. I love that. And I, I actually remember when I had to move my programs online, it was around 2014. And this was back when we had to code websites. So I actually had hired a high school student out of Chicago. His name was Austin Walsh and he would he would be in class and I, I called him and he was the best. He was helping like a lot of the motivational speakers I was working with like um, Les Brown. He was helping them, um, Mark Victor Hansen to move their stuff online. So I thought, oh, hey, can you help me? And he was like, yeah, I just got to finish history class. And I'm like, well, how old are you? He was 16 at the time. And it was just amazing. I loved working with Austin. It was the, the best experience. But can you share how pen the pandemic and your health caused you to take everything that you were doing one on one to an online model and how you did it for those people that might be thinking about it? Yeah, for sure. I think. Um... Well, first of all, I think it happened overnight, right? And it was crazy. And um, so it is interesting to see how differently people kind of react to um, an emergency situation, right? And um, so I think teachers in that way um, have always been really great about sharing and um, sharing is caring. And 
So I think that was kind of like the beginning of me to kind of, you know, really my husband set me up with LinkedIn and um, I started becoming more active there and started realizing that um, there are people everywhere that are fighting the good fight. And um, in a way, it allowed me to feel more connected to my professional world. Um, in Vermont, is we're just, we're kind of resource limited. And, um, but as getting back to the point, um, switching to Zoom was crazy and fast. And um, thank God I was able to find people where we could share ideas and um, make suggestions. And um, because I, I, it was exhausting. And um, I think any teacher can understand um, what this last year was like. And I think the stories are common. And um, I would have like a 13 hour day of teaching virtual and Zoom fatigue is real. And I can remember I would just have like the energy just enough to have my husband put a meal in front of me, sit with my family at the table, have 30 minutes of a conversation. And I was going to bed at like 7.30 at night. Um, so, but really, uh, what happened for me during COVID is that, um, at the end of January I had a pretty severe concussion because I was working 13 hour days and trying to fit in a ski. And, um, yeah, I, I had to stop abruptly, um, with my one-on-one, -on -one, the virtual, and, um, it was a really scary and, um, uh, difficult time. Um, but it also gave me the time and space to just really kind of reimagine what um, we have kind of always assumed school to be. And, um, you know, allowed me to have the time to connect with more of the people um, that are really just doing really amazing work in the field of education and specifically um, the field of dyslexia and, and how we really need to be doing more for these kids. And um, there was just kind of like this, I, I feel like, and I hope that we're in the midst of a really big movement of all of us coming together instead of doing all of these diluted separate fights of really banding together and um, supporting these kids better. That's exactly why when we spoke through LinkedIn that I thought, you know, the more that I got to know your story, I thought this is the perfect place to showcase what you're doing because people all over the world could benefit from the fact that you had a head injury, but you still launched this and got things going, you know, in, in the most difficult time. That's let alone the fact of what you're doing with the students. It was personally and professionally, you got this going. And so when when I met you, which I'm glad you're on LinkedIn because that's where you can connect to people all over the place, you know, not just the US, but it, it brings everyone so tightly knit and everyone's so professional on that platform. I just love connecting with people in this space all over the world. I think that'll be a great a great place as well. But I wanted to ask, how does your program actually work? So do you work with students outside of Vermont because you're online? Could you host people from, let's say, the UK, internationally, Canada? How, do, how does it work? 
Yeah, I mean, like that part of it is really cool. I was um, just doing a Zoom call with someone in the UK who's helping my son um, who has dyslexia with um, a new writing tool that he's developed. And um, I think that's that's part of what is so cool about how we're looking at learning now. And um, don't get me wrong, like I fully was so ready for my kids to go back to in-person and my kids who are teenage boys my husband and I never thought we would be um, raising boys at that age saying, I can't wait to go back to school. I want to go to school. But like they were so fed up with virtual. Um, but I do think that once students are more in person again, um, you know, that one hour a week or one hour, or two hours a month virtually is um, going to be more accessible for them. So you know, I, we, we, like I said, we don't have specialized schools for kids with dyslexia in Vermont. We really don't in a lot of places. And so um, we just have limited resources. So finding my tribe and my people was um, tricky. And I kind of felt like I was spending 20 years going, dyslexia is real. It's a real thing. We're talking one in five. Um, and just kind of like screaming into the void. And, um, now, now I can read has instructors in Vancouver. We have instructors in New Jersey and, um, you know, and they're expert instructors, you know, and I think that's kind of like something I've always had to contend with professionally is, you know, tons and tons of people entering the profession and saying, I'm a tutor, I can do this, I can tutor your child in reading and writing. And, you know, all, you know, so many families would come to me after wasting so many years um, and money on, you know, instruction that just wasn't, you know, having any gains and kids weren't getting anywhere. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, you it, the, the dream and, and what's happening is that kids are joining from all over the place and we have instructors that are all over the place and um and they're and even though we're virtual, it's really pretty incredible that over this past year um we saw similar gains that we saw in the previous 19 years. So as long as the instruction is, is, is effective and it, and it is research-based and, and, you know, the instructor knows what they're doing, but they're also able to make that connection and that relationship with kids that we were just talking about virtually, it, it is possible, you know, and um, there's, there's just so much more flexibility now with being able to access these services that are so needed. And when we were speaking before, we were talking a little bit about how students who are struggling to read also have need in social and emotional skills. So when when we were talking and you were mentioning that's a huge component of your program, I was just thrilled to hear that. Can you just share like um, how you're incorporating social and emotional learning into your learn to read programs? Yeah, so I um you know, I think I'm so glad to hear that social emotional learning is finding more of a place and um, there's there's more fidelity to the, the need for it, um, but it's always been a part of what I do. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I really don't think parents understand how challenging it is for their kids. And I, um, 
you know, parents are, have always been more than willing to drop their kids off and, you know, get some, pay someone to teach their kid how to read, right? Like most parents um, understand how valuable literacy is for their child and for their um, adulthood. I don't think parents understand the shame and the isolation that these kids are feeling on a daily basis. And um, it could be that, um, you know, with, with the increased skills, you know, these kids start to show more confidence and they start to show, um, you know, the things that we kind of wanted our kids to show all along. But I think so many of our kids are super stealth and, um, they keep their struggles hidden. And as a result of that, there's just, um, there is so much shame that comes along with how they're feeling and they're in an environment that is, you know, causing them to feel shame and causing them to feel like they're the only one that is feeling this way. And um, I think just working with a child one-on-one, you start to realize that, um, you know, things will come up like, yeah, sometimes I just pretend like I'm reading the book or yeah, how, you know, and, and, and it's sometimes I would, you know, I don't know that he really likes this, but sometimes I would just make students that I would make up stories about my son, Brendan, um, to just take that, the, the pressure off of them and just say, you know, sometimes, you know, he has teachers that call on him, like in the middle of class, and he had no idea they were going to call on him. And he would talk about like how stressful that felt for him and how awful that felt for him. And, um, and then all of a sudden they would start um, giving you their own stories. And, Um, I think no matter what you're doing, you have to meet a child where they're at now. And um, a lot of us don't really know where they're at now. A lot of us don't know how truly negative that self-talk is that they are playing over and over and over in their heads. And um, that's kind of how I I, uh, Redefy Learning was born because I was doing a deep dive into Brene Brown And um, she is like the expert on shame and um, everything she was saying just resonated with me so deeply. And I was like, God, she talks about armor and she talks about, um, you know, the guards that we put up to protect ourselves. And I, every time I would listen to her, um, listen to her book, because I, I read with my ears, just like I asked my students to. And Um, she would talk about armor and I would think, God, there is like, there's nobody in the world that has more armor than a middle schooler or a child who is in school and is not doing what their peers are doing because they can't. And um, they think that they're stupid. They think that something's wrong with them. Um, But mom and dad don't really know that. They don't really know what's happening. They just they just know that they have a kid that, you know, doesn't like school that much, but, you know, they find success on the soccer field or they love to horseback ride or, you know, they just, they find therapists to help them deal with their, their confidence or their anxiety or their depression. Um, but being a child of a child, you know, being a parent of a child with dyslexia, I mean, I know that they're not fine. Like I've listened to kids tell me their stories over and over and over again. And they're all the same. These are kids that are feeling like they're the only ones. These are the kids that are falling through the cracks 
and they are super stealth and they are just so good at staying hidden. And, um, they have wildly inaccurate stories that they're telling themselves about, you know, that they're stupid, that there's something wrong with them, but what they need to be replaying is, and they need to be hearing is that it's actually a gift that dyslexia, whether you have dyslexia, whether it's diagnosed, whether it's not, whether it's reading is just hard. There's a lot of gifts that come along with that. And, um, it's actually a sign of genius, you know, and it really is. And I, you know, I think, God, how are we not teaching these kids this? Because, you know, you talk about LinkedIn, like you talk about entrepreneurs and you talk about people that just create something that we don't have yet because we need it. And oh my God, how did I live without that? You know, that's these kids, you know, and we, we don't talk about the 40% of kids with dyslexia that grow up to be our CEOs and our entrepreneurs and our future leaders, or the 40% of them that are the world's millionaires or billionaires. Like these are the kids that need these leadership skills. And that's why I started um, Redefy Learning because there really is nothing for those kids, you know, and they learn how to read and write. They get all the structured literacy that they need, but there's nobody that's really giving them those next level steps of, okay, guess what? You're going to have to write like a lot of essays <laughs> to get through school, you know, and it's really important that you learn how to express yourself, whether it's through oral or written communication. And, um, you know, I just started to like imagine being able to do these next level skills in a group of kids and with families where we're all doing the same thing. And you're not asking a child to read with your ears when everyone else in the classroom is using their eyes. You know, all of a sudden we're doing it as a community and we're, you know, we're practicing the tools that we're going to need. Um, so yeah, back to your original question, which I think was about social emotional learning. I think, you know, the only way that we can really get out of those places of shame and isolation is through connection, right. And through others and, um, and that we- self-awareness too, right. Because th- for them to be aware that it's a gift, this is a whole new paradigm shift for them to, to be like, it's not, there's nothing to be ashamed of that you need a different way of learning how to read. Yeah. And it, it's us that have it wrong. Mm-hmm. It's systems that have it wrong. Like it's us that haven't been trained well, you know, and, um, but we, there's, it's also us that know, we know what works. We just have to get you, get you access to those things that work. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. So what is your vision for where you'd like to see this going? Like, I love the fact that you're international because that, that just makes my heart sing. The fact that you're helping kids all over the place. So what's your vision for this? It makes my heart sing too, because we, you know, I, as I said, my husband and I, well, I didn't say this, but we met in Chicago and um, through the volunteer program and um, heart, one of the hardest parts of us moving back to Vermont was diversity. And 
um, the lack of diversity, the, you know, the, the various shades of white that we have in our state and um, raising children in that environment. And so I think um, that was part of what excites me the most too, is that we do have access to people all over the world and people that don't look like us and people that don't think like us. Um, but I, I love that piece of it too, that it is worldwide. And I love that I have um, appointments like yours that are going into my calendar that I have to check time zones and make sure that the time zones are aligning. Um, but yeah, so we, we decided to name Redefy um, because of the word defy. And, you know, I just think that there um, is so much bravery with all of the students that I've worked with. And um, there's a lot of bravery that comes with uh, acknowledging that you need help. And um, so then we decided to call our one-on-one -on -one program Intensify because that's the intensive instruction that's needed. Um, but I, I think for me, you know, the, the next three to five years is I, I want to see now I can read grow as much as possible. And I, um, I just grew tired of fighting systems and, you know, kind of um, helping kids stay afloat. I think, you know, I just decided, why are we doing this? Why don't we just make something better, make something that our kids don't have yet? And um, I can see that now I can read and the Readify serving adults in the next three to five years. I, you know, I'm a member of a lot of Facebook groups for parents of children with dyslexia and adults um who have dyslexia or think they might have dyslexia but never got diagnosed and i think um there's just a lot of sad stories but they're all common stories and i think um it's really inspiring to to flip that script and to talk about all of the strengths that this community has and how we can um, really be teaching these gifts super young and, um, and over and over and over again so that we're beating the script of the negative talk that's happening, whether you're 10 years old or 50. Um, and I, I just, I love the movement that's happening. I think that there, like I said, there's just a lot of people that are doing really amazing work. And I think the more we can band together with a common vision and a common goal, the more awareness we're going to spread and the more lives we're going to change. Love it. I love what you're doing over there. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. For people who want to learn more, is the best way to go to your web website, redefylearning.com? Is that the best? Yes. And so, so that was kind of like part of the problem too, is that I realized um, my cousin, my cousin Keela uh, Gendron, she and I had been like bouncing back ideas of like the name for a long time. And um, she helped me design my website as well. And I, she actually came up with the name Redify. And it was like, we were like, it was like two in the morning and she's in Colorado and I'm in Massachusetts and we're going back and forth. And I was like, oh my God, I love it. I love the idea of defying um what we think learning is and um so yeah but the problem is is that redefine is really difficult to spell and i don't know how you you know like how are you going to spell that you look that up so 
Yes, you can go to Readify Learning, um, but you can also go to nowicanread.com. And I think now I can read is a lot easier to find. And that is, you know, kind of the umbrella company to the two services and products that it offers. Well, I understand that very well. All the years brainstorming achieve at 360.com and then people think it's achieve it and so they're yeah. achieving technical skills and I'm yeah. Thinking, no, yeah. that was like a year of brainstorming so I understand the whole thing and and it's great that you can redirect websites because I have a few websites over the years that redirect to achieve at 360 but uh, so readifylearning.com or now I can read dot com is the same place and i've put all that in the show notes as well it is the best next step someone who wants to speak with you go to the book a consultation page is that the best yeah and i also um you know in my time off wrote an ebook um you know basically you know the the very long title is um i'm worried my child has dyslexia what now um but really it's um, like, like we talked about, I think there's a lot of shame with the word dyslexia and, and it's unfortunate. And I'm hoping that we're going to be changing that narrative very soon. Um, but yeah, the, it's just, um, you know, it, it gives a breakdown of different age levels of, of, you know, different kind of warning signs and what to do next and what I would do as a parent, what I did as a parent. Um, so if you go to the main website, you'll get a free ebook if you just pop in your email and that can be a good way to connect to and you'll get a copy of that ebook that I think it's really important to share as much information as possible that's really expert information because I, I, as a parent, um, you know, you want what's best for your child and um, you want to fix things that you think are broken. And I remember my son looking at me and saying, I'm not broken. And um, it was so powerful. And I, and I said, you know what, Brennan, you're absolutely not broken. You are amazing. You are genius. And, um, but that's not to say that um, we don't need to get you the right tools and the right instruction to make sure that you feel successful in our literate world. Um, so yeah, you can you can click and get a free copy of that ebook, and um, that's kind of that can be a good first step too for parents that are kind of wondering or teachers are who are worried about not reaching all of their kids like I was feeling in my beginning days. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing all that you've done. It's phenomenal the work you've put in the past twenty years. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing your ideas. Do you have any final thoughts to close out with? If there's parents or teachers and they're just thinking, you know, is this for me? What kind of final thoughts would you have? I think my final thought would be, um, and I'm a wordy person, so I, I haven't really thought about it until now, but I think I would just say, um, stop stop waiting, you know, and stop saying wait it out. You know, I think um, the whole idea of Leo's a late bloomer is, is archaic and it, it is ineffective and it leads to really sad outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so if you're worried and um, you think something's up, your intuition is usually right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
get help. You start digging, start, you know, stop listening to people that are telling you to wait it out because that teacher probably doesn't know. And, um, you probably don't know because it's, it's not your training. It's not your background. Um, but if your instinct is that, you know, something's not quite right, you're probably correct. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice because I always thought wait it out that maybe yeah. the brain isn't developed yet that we need yeah. to just wait it out. But you're absolutely right when something is telling you inside, no, nope, there's something and it's going into math problems because the literacy does affect different subject areas. So catching it as soon as possible, especially we know the statistics by third grade. So I think, you know, if you haven't caught it by third grade. You're right. And I, you know, I think we don't, um, you know, I think we don't catch it early enough. We just don't. And um, what is that? I think it's over 90% of kids that are reading well in first grade will for life. Mm, And, um, and it's, and it's never too late. That's not to say it's too late, but it's just so much easier. Dyslexia is so much easier. All of these issues are so much easier to remediate the earlier you start. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for all of these resources. We appreciate you coming on and sharing. Looking forward to supporting you throughout your whole career, whatever you choose to do, whatever move you make with this field. Thanks so much. Same. Same. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.